You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host from New York City, Ankit Panda. And this is Prashant Parameswaran from Washington, D.C. Good to be back with you, Prashant. How are you doing this week? Good. How are you doing? Doing well. Although uh, I am, you know, watching with concern uh, developments in the Asia-Pacific region, again, pertaining to U.S. alliances. Uh, of course, some of our listeners might be aware of what I'm talking about here. Uh, this is pertaining to the decision by the Philippines government to formally submit a notification to the United States uh, that it will terminate the Visiting Forces Agreement. Um, and we've talked about the U.S.-Philippines alliance uh, several times on this podcast in the last three years. In fact, uh, this podcast is actually about to hit its six-year anniversary uh, later this month, which is kind of ridiculous to think that we've been doing this for six years. But um, certainly since 2016 and the election of President Rodrigo Duterte, um, the future of this alliance has come into doubt multiple times. Uh, last year uh, in the spring uh, we did a few episodes looking at um, Pompeo's uh, sort of firefighting trip to the Philippines to offer a clarification on the mutual defense treaty on the South China Sea, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, but now we're looking at this sort of very significant component of U.S.-Philippines military cooperation, the Visiting Forces Agreement, potentially nearing an end. And, and, and Prashant, uh, you've obviously done a lot of work on this, on the alliance in general, and uh, you just wrote about the VFA. So I was wondering if uh, maybe to kick off, you could just... Tell our listeners a little bit what exactly the VFA is, uh, how it's different from the Mutual Defense Treaty and um, things like uh, the Enhanced Defense Cooperation Act of 2014. There's all these acronyms pertaining to the U.S.-Philippines alliance that I think people have trouble keeping straight sometimes. Um, and then maybe tell us a little bit about how we actually got here in the in the last year. Yeah, so this Visiting Forces Agreement is essentially, you know, the best way to describe it, the simplest way to describe it is it's sort of a a sort of status of forces agreement uh, of sorts, which basically is the terms of agreement under which uh, countries agree to have another sort of foreign uh, military personnel from another country on the country's soil. So you kind of have to legally, um, and this is the case with the U.S. and the Philippines, you have to have these uh, sort of agreements in order to have foreign military personnel present in some way. So this have to be, you know, the terms have to be negotiated between the two countries and essentially serves as a way to actually govern the presence of these of this personnel. So that's one part of the mutual defense treaty that's existed between the United States and the Philippines, which is only one part of a broader legacy um, of the relationship, which includes, you know, the, the, the past history of the U.S. colonial legacy in the Philippines, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, the where we're at right now is um, where the since President Rodrigo Duterte has taken office back in 2016, we've had, as you mentioned briefly, um, you know, repeated instances where he's threatened to basically, you know, either end the alliance, you know, separate from the United States, um, you know, end exercises, things like that. A lot of those threats haven't actually been, been been followed through. And in fact, as you pointed out, you know, Secretary Pompeo, the Trump administration in general have actually strengthened some elements of the U.S.-Philippine alliance. But this is actually the closest that we've seen and, and kind of the most serious actual test for the alliance since Duterte has taken office, because you don't just have him talking about, you know, a, a potential end of the alliance or something like that. There's actually a formal notification that's delivered to the United States by the Philippines that uh, to actually withdraw from the visiting forces agreement, which sets the clock uh, for 180 days uh, to actually start ticking. And once that ends, you essentially have, uh, you know, the, the visiting forces agreement. And important to note for listeners, I mean, it has it actually hasn't ended yet. 
And even if it does end, you know, the, the U.S.-Philippine alliance will still be there. The, the issue, though, is if you talk to any Philippine military official that's familiar with the alliance, they'll tell you, you know, without the terms in which you have um, U.S. personnel actually present in the Philippines, you know, it's very difficult to foresee how you would actually conduct exercises and actually have the United States and the Philippines work on things like how to defend the Philippines from various contingencies, whether it's natural disasters or the South China Sea, so on and so forth. So essentially, this is where we're at. I mean, it's important to note the irony of the situation too, right? So the Visiting Forces Agreement, which was itself something that was reached in the late 1990s after uh, the Philippines had said that it wanted to close U.S. bases that were present. Right. And it quickly discovered uh, that, you know, after it did that, it was rendered largely defenseless with its limited military capabilities. And China actually started taking very bold actions in the South China Sea, including the occupation of the Mischief Reef. So we're now left in a situation where, you know, we're not just hypothetically talking about, you know, what might happen. We actually have a historical record about what happens when the alliance goes through periods like this. And I think the big fear is, you know, what could happen if this actually gets followed through on? Right. Yeah. But as you just noted, I mean, with the allusion to the 1990s, this is not the first time that the U.S.-Philippines alliance is potentially looking at a major period of recalibration, right? This is not the end of the Mutual Defense Treaty per se, but yes, the VFA would be, uh, it would sort of be pulling the rug out of whatever normalcy mm -hmm. exists within the alliance. You know, I'll, I'll be honest, I find status of forces agreements in general to be sort of confusing. Um, I mean, I, I've talked to people, especially in South Korea and Japan, uh, who've worked on these agreements, and there's all these sensitivities. I mean, uh, one of the other things, uh, you know, that we should probably mention is that this also governs things like legal liabilities for U.S. Mm -hmm. forces that are involved in accidents or crimes on the on the territory of, of an allied country. Certainly, there have been many controversial um, episodes of that in, in nearly every country where there are U.S. troops under, under a SOFA-style arrangement, and certainly the Philippines um, falls in there. You know, I mean, what I find most interesting about just the Duterte period, and I know we've talked about this multiple times on the podcast, is if you, if you just look at the track record of the Philippines security environment since 2016, internally and externally, and you look at what the United States has been contributing to uh, Philippine security, um, you know, let's take, for example, I think the two easiest examples to talk about are counterinsurgency in the southern Philippines. We can talk about the 2017 Marawi siege and the role that U.S. advisors played on the ground. Um, and then in the external phase, um, certainly the South China Sea. Um, so if you look at the security environment, right, this should be the moment when inside the Philippines, um, and you know, I mean, oh, oh, we should be clear, and we say this a lot on the podcast, but I mean, the Philippines is one of the most pro-American countries in the world. Um, public opinion mm -hmm. is very much in favor of the United States uh, and the alliance broadly. Uh, it just so happens that Duterte has had a long-standing personal record of anti-American utterances, and he's taken that with him to the presidential palace. Um, but it's, it's just, um, it's just, you know, surprising when you look at the security environment and you look at these um, decisions that are coming out. Uh, so why is, I mean, is this really as simple as, you know, Duterte is anti-American and he thinks that pulling out of the VFA is going to be a way to sort of show that he really means what he says and he's willing to walk the talk? Or is there something else going on here that, you know, I'm not privy to? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, that it's a confusing question because you get uh, various headlines coming out in the Duterte administration where the policy process really, you know, sometimes there's, you know, policy that's going on behind the scenes and then what you actually see in the headlines. So, you know, one theory of this has been that, you know, Duterte just sort of, 
you know, in response to various uh, U.S. actions, whether it's criticism of, you know, his uh, so-called drug war and extrajudicial killings in the Philippines, um, and the fact that the United States has actually uh, revoked uh, the visa of a key Duterte ally um, in response to some of the rights concerns that uh, the United States has had, that the Duterte administration and Duterte himself is reacting to this uh, sort of, you know, in... Uh, sort of in contravention to the security environment that the Philippines experiences, like you mentioned. And there's this other sense that, you know, he's always wanted to do this, you know, all along, and he's just using this as an opportunity to do so. And I I, I don't think that either one of those uh, explanations fully explains where we're at, mm -hmm. um, simply because, you know, as of just a few weeks ago, um, Duterte advisors were saying, you know, even publicly as well as privately, that you know, despite what the president says, we actually have the situation under control. We're going to talk about this with the Philippines. The, the United States and the Philippines actually have um, a meeting that's coming up in March where they're supposed to actually tackle a lot of the issues in the bilateral relationship. So the fact that this is happening now, um, you know, it doesn't fully account for why Duterte would be doing this um, at the current moment. And, the, you know, and the fact that this is something that, you know, he's come up impromptu just because of, you know, he's frustrated or angry. As you noted correctly, I mean, Duterte has, you know, deep anti-U.S. Uh, sentiments that go back even before uh, he took office. So really, I think the big um, reminder of this uh, with respect to the VFA is the fact that actually we haven't seen uh, actual um, sort of detrimental effects on the alliance since Duterte has come into office is actually a pretty big victory for the alliance. Um, but it's a reminder that this battle is only kind of half won, right? He's actually in office until 2022. And in the Philippines, the president has a single six-year term. And so this is a reminder that that battle is not yet won um, and that th there will continue to be, I think, stresses on the alliance as long as you don't have intervening factors. So you mentioned the, the Marawi siege, which is a great example, actually, in 2017, which actually reinforced Duterte irrespective of your personal sentiments of the alliance, the Philippines needs the United States. But right now, we don't really have one of those external uh, events that are actually interfering. And if we do, I suspect that we'll revert to where we were back in that situation. Right. So let's talk a little bit about this 180-day ticking clocks. I think that's one of the interesting things about what's just happened. Um, so uh, Teddy Luxon Jr., the Philippines uh, f a foreign minister who uh, delivered the notification, or at least uh, publicly stated that the notification to the United States had been delivered, has certainly had some interesting things to say on Twitter. I mean, he always says interesting things on Twitter. But, uh, yeah. you know, in, in one tweet, um, he was replying to a reporter uh, who implied that the 180 day countdown would be used to effectively negotiate with the United States. And then he replied to that reporter saying that you're the only one who got that other reactions have been idiotic, basically implying that this is a, you know, the Philippines playing hardball with the United States and the next 180 days will really not involve preparing for a future without the VFA in the Philippines, but rather preparing to renegotiate the terms under which the, um, the United States um, sits in the Philippines. And again, if we look at the history of the alliance in the early 1990s, this has certainly been something that the two countries have gone through in the past. And also, I mean, Loxon, you know, he's, he's testified in the Senate saying that terminating the VFA will negatively impact the mm -hmm. Philippine security and defense arrangements, as well as the overall bilateral relations of the Philippines with the U.S. So I think he's, he's at least clear-eyed about the consequences of ending the agreement. So is this, is this really the answer to, I guess, the confusing question, <laughs> as you put it, uh, about, about why the Philippines is doing this? 
Because, um, again, I mean, the Philippines Armed Forces certainly and um, Delphine Lorenzana, uh, the defense minister, has also been uh, talking about the adverse consequences there. Is this really an opportunity for Duterte's advisors to, A, you know, allow the president to appear like he's willing to walk the walk on his anti-American rhetoric, but in the end walk away with um, a few concessions from Washington? Is this tactic even likely to work if this is what's happening? Yeah, I mean, I I think that is the more sort of optimistic scenario here that you actually have uh, the sort of the so-called, you know, deep state in the Philippines actually working hand in hand with Duterte, whether it's by design or by circumstance, and that the Philippines will actually come out of this actually gaining some concessions. And if you look at the record um, where Duterte has raised questions about the United States and the alliance, um, you know, uh, an example that you pointed out, which is, you know, Pompeo delivering a clarification on the South China Sea was something which the Philippines had actually asked for before, including under the Obama administration. But now it's actually gotten it uh, from a place where Duterte has actually questioned it. So that's kind of the more optimistic assessment. Um, what I worry about, though, is that, um, you know, Luxin and some of the other officials, Lorenzana as well, um, had pointed out before that this VFA thing uh, wouldn't actually come to pass. Uh, they had actually tried to slow it down through by saying that, hey, you know, listen, we need an evaluation of the costs and benefits of the VFA. We can talk about this with the United States. But you saw Duterte come in this time in ways that he hasn't really done before and sort of say, no, I, you know, I've in fact spoken to President Trump. He's tried to slow walk this. But I want this done right now, and I, you know, I, I don't care what other people are saying. I, I want this to happen. Um, whether or not that actually proves to be what what happens is unclear to me. But nonetheless, I, I do think there is an element of risk here. Um, you know, and it's not just the Philippines. We have a similar dynamic actually in the United States, where we're sort of relying on the on the deep state and the institutions of the country to actually sort of contain the president's impulses. But essentially, we're left with a situation where eventually, I mean, the president is the final arbiter. So if Duterte wanted to actually end this and he actually had the will to follow through, um, this could actually happen. And in fact, you saw Lorenzana say that, um, I think, last week when he said, hey, listen, I mean, uh, I have my own views on the VFA. I've mentioned this before, but if the president says something, I I can't really say anything after that because he's the president of the Philippines. So Mm -hmm. I think that's the danger that we're talking about. And then we'll see sort of the real consequences playing out of the security landscape. Right. So worst case scenario, um, nothing happens over the 180 day period. The Philippines uh, withdraws from the VFA as it has intimated it will do so. Does anybody really know what sort of day 181 looks like? Or is that something that is going to be sort of figured out on the fly? I mean, certainly looking at the bureaucratic capacity in the United States, it's uh, unclear that Washington uh, has the capacity to firefight this right now or even... uh, you know, to prepare for a potential day 181 scenario? What's your uh, expectation there? I, I mean, I think I go back to the point that you raised before, which I think it's really important to keep in mind. I mean, some folks have been saying, you know, and we've seen some of the headlines talk about, hey, listen, you know, the, the U.S.-Philippine alliance has been through rough periods in the past, and, you know, we can kind of renegotiate these agreements. You know, the alliance is deeper than, uh, you know, just this military relationship. You know, there's people-to-people aspects, economic aspects. All of that, you know, certainly true, and I, I, I kind of buy that. But two things I point out: one is these visiting forces agreement and status forces agreements in general are not easy to negotiate, right. um, particularly in a in a democratic environment like the Philippines, where it just takes a long time to do anything. I mean, the the enhanced defense cooperation agreement 
um, that you and I have written about and talked about before, you know, that took two years to pass through the Philippine legislature. So this is not something that you can just, um, you know, renege on and just come in, you know, the next day on, on day 181. And then the other aspect that I point out to is you've seen some Philippine military officials talk about, hey, listen, you know, this is not just a U.S. game. You know, we can actually make up for this by relying more on Japan, by talking more with Australia. Um, I just do I do need to point out factually, though, that there's been a lot of talk about the Philippines and Japan actually getting a, some, some sort of status forces agreement and the Japanese deploying some military personnel. I mean, that's something which, you know, it was a far fetched notion when it was talked about before. But it's certainly something which hasn't gained a lot of traction under the Duterte administration. A lot of things that Japan has been doing has been more moderate things like economic assistance, Coast Guard exercises, things like that. But the idea of, you know, having Japan, given the degree of military restraint that it's shown and continues to show, to actually have military personnel that would be replacing the United States and carrying out, you know, something like 300 exercises the United States and the Philippines have today. I mean, that is a very, very far-fetched notion. And, and the same thing uh, with respect to Australia, um, you know, that Australia is not going to be able to make up for what uh, the United States offers through the visiting uh, forces agreement. So essentially what you're left with on day 181 is uh, the Philippines in a position of vulnerability, like where it was in the early 1990s, where uh, and we know what happened. Right. So essentially, you know, the, the Philippines essentially lost a lot of the value of the U.S.-Philippine alliance. And then the, the succeeding years, we saw China actually make a lot of inroads in the South China Sea, including the, the occupation of Mischief Reef. And you saw this domestic clamor in the Philippines for, oh, my God, we have to kind of renegotiate a deal with the United States. And that's actually where you saw the visiting forces agreement come into play. Mm-hmm. So I think that is the big worrying scenario about day 181, because the Philippine military, um, you know, is it's building up in terms of its capabilities, but it's still one of the weakest militaries in the Asia Pacific. Right. Um, and that's going to be laid bare uh, on day 181 if this doesn't get sorted out. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, before we close, just to zoom out for a second, I mean, this has really not been a uh, very good week for U.S. Indo-Pacific strategy uh, in general, right? I mean, not only uh, not only the, the formal notification coming out of the Philippines on the VFA, um, but again, you know, we just... Um, got to look at the White House's uh, 2021 budget request mm-hmm. and, you know, the Indo-Pacific being the priority theater, as the DOD said in the strategy report last year, certainly doesn't come through in that document. Um, but also, I mean, this, this, I mean, uh, the conversation we're having right now about the Philippines is, I think, again, I mean, telling us just, uh, you know, the state of alliances under the Trump administration in general is not in a good place. I mean, um, you know, we're still uh, on the, on the U.S.-Korea front, we're still waiting for a finalized special measures agreement as the U.S. is still trying to get um, several billion dollars out of out of the Koreans. Uh, Japan is going to enter negotiations with the U.S. for its own special measures agreement um, this year, uh, which is probably not going to go uh, any better than the round that's going on with the Koreans right now. Um, obviously, I think what's different in both those cases is that in Seoul and Tokyo, you don't have the kind of leadership that we now have in the Philippines, where uh, you have a character like Duterte, who's recalibrated the country's position between China and the United States pretty dramatically. But overall, I mean, uh, I think I think we're seeing a very, uh, you know, turbulent environment ahead, at least for the rest of 2020. Yeah. And that's an important point to note, um, to zoom out on that alliance point, because if you are claiming to have a, a strategy, the, the free and open Indo-Pacific strategy or vision, um, and you are embarking on major power or great power competition with China, um, you you do want to have your allies and partners to to have your back, but at least 
you know, not be engaged in these um, renegotiations that reveal the fissures uh, in your alliances and partnerships. And I, unfortunately, that is the position in which, you know, the Trump administration finds itself in. And, you know, really with all five of its treaty allies in the last few years since Trump has taken office, we've seen periods of tensions uh, between the United States and, and its allies. So uh, this is definitely a story which I think we'll be coming back to on the podcast uh, in, in months to come. So That's right. Well, Prashant, we'll, uh, we'll end it there for now and we'll keep a close eye on uh, how the 180 uh, day period with the VFA goes and potentially come back if things do appear to get more dire. But uh, thanks a lot for joining me and for providing your insight on the U.S.-Philippine relationship as always. Yeah, good to be with you. Great. Uh, so for listeners, if you like what you heard on the podcast, make sure you hit that subscribe button on iTunes, Google Play, uh, Spotify, any other number of podcast providers, just so you can keep in touch with future episodes. And if you've been listening for a while, but you haven't yet left us a review, please do so. We really appreciate that. Helps new people find the show. Um, and we really do take uh, the reviews seriously in terms of feedback as well. And finally, before we close, just a note from our sponsor. This episode of the Asia Geopolitics Podcast is brought to you by Diplomat Risk Intelligence, or DRI. DRI is the Consulting and Analysis Division of The Diplomat, the Asia-Pacific's leading current affairs magazine. Since its launch in 2002, The Diplomat has been dedicated to quality analysis and commentary on events and trends in Asia and around the world, and is now one of the most respected publications covering the region. DRI inherits this approach and offers clients in the private, public, and nonprofit sectors worldwide access to an exclusive network of subject matter experts and analysts. Whatever your needs in the wider Asia-Pacific region, DRI can offer the knowledge and expertise necessary to anticipate and manage geopolitical and geoeconomic risk. For more information, please visit dri.thediplomat.com. Thanks a lot for listening, and we'll be back next week with more.